Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here. Great to see you. We know we have others joining in um, who we'll look forward to seeing as well. And um, But we are thrilled to be with you all who are in the Zoom and the many more who are on the recording side here with us today um, to discuss a very important book, To Be a Holy People, Jewish Tradition and Ethical Values. <clears throat> and there are many worthwhile things to do on Yom HaShoah, but it is worth noting perhaps that on Holocaust Remembrance Day, <clears throat> that the study of ethics might be one of the most important things we can do um, to build a more just and ethical world going forward and to understand our past. And we thank Temple Solel for partnership today. We always love learning with them. And we are thrilled to be here today with Rabbi Dr. Eugene Korn, who holds a doctorate in moral philosophy from Columbia University and Orthodox Rabbinic Ordination from Pirchei Shoshanim in Israel. His books include Jewish Theology and World Religions, Plowshares in Swords, Covenant and Hope, and the Jewish Connection to Israel. His writings have been translated into Hebrew, German, Italian, and Spanish. He and his wife, Lila, <coughs> excuse me, he and his wife, Lila Magnus Korn, live in Jerusalem. And today we are going to hear from Rabbi Korn about this book, To Be a Holy People, and um, uh, um, such interesting stuff here, and just to reflect a little bit on some of the table of contents here um, on liberty and halakha, the open Torah of Maimonides, religious violence, sacred texts and theological values, Judaism and the, and the religious other, Jewish ethics and the future, reflections on a Jewish tragedy, the image of God and Jewish morality, really looking at a range of, of abstract and practical ethical issues. So Rabbi Dr. Korn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's it's an honor to be back at the uh, Valley Beit Midrash and to be with my good friend uh, Rav Shmuley. Um, and uh, thank you for talking about mentioning the book. The book came out in December, uh, but the book is not the issue. The issue is really the compelling uh, questions and responses that we have regarding Jewish ethics. And I, I mentioned to uh, Rav Shmuley earlier that I don't think it's just a pure coincidence that we're doing this program on Yom HaShoah, because really what was the Shoah? What was the Holocaust? It was a time when evil ran amok uh, in at least uh, the West and, and humanity. And it was a time when, when there were no moral restraints on the part of the Nazis. And we saw what that led to, and we saw the disaster, not only for our people, but I think for entire Western civilization. So um, I think it's a very critical issue. Thank God we're not living in the time of, uh, of Nazism any longer, but we still have burning, burning, uh, universal and Jewish questions. All you have to do is look up at, at the news and you see what's going on in Ukraine uh, to realize what happens when uh, there's no moral restraint and, and evil just takes over. So uh, what I wanna do tonight is reflect a little bit about what, what is morality, what is ethics on a universal level, um, and talk about what is specific about Jewish ethics and what our tradition has to contribute toward our ethical sensibility and our eth ethical sensitivity. Um, so then I, I did um, pass on uh, some 
source material, some rabbinic literature, biblical literature uh, that refers to Jewish ethics. So let me just say that that um, ethics in general is a universal human characteristic, which is not to say that all human beings are ethical, but all what is unique, one of the things that is unique about, about human life, about human consciousness, is that we have an ethical sensibility. That is, we have the ability to know the difference between right and wrong. We, have, we understand not only facts in the universe, but values. And hopefully we try to live our life according to these values. Um, and uh, how could I put that in Jewish terms? Uh, the Bible tells us that, that in the creation of the world, God created material um, and uh, the animal uh, kingdom. Um, and then he created human, or she created, or it created uh, human beings, right? And there's a unique property of human beings. And that is we're created in the image of God. But the Bible never tells us what the image of God is, you know. Um, so we're left kind of wondering. And, and the rabbis engaged in a lot of conversation and speculation about what they think the image of God is. And there was one rabbi, a Hasidic rabbi, um, uh, and he wrote a book called the Meshach Chachma. The book is a commentary on the Bible. And he said that uh, when the Bible tells us that we're creating the image of God, what it means is that God implanted in human consciousness and human personality, ethical sensibility, the, the ability, uh, the unique human ability to understand values, uh, the difference between right and wrong, the difference between justice and injustice, and the difference between moral goodness and evil. And so, so that was a description of, of the universal condition. Um, and I would say that, that ethics is essential to understand the biblical idea and the rabbinic idea of the purpose of the Jewish people. Um, it's, it, it occurs very early on in biblical literature, in the Torah, um, and it occurs all over uh, the rabbinic literature, primarily the Talmud, that ethics is essential or ethical integrity uh, and ethical values are essential to the very definition of, of the Jewish purpose on earth. Um, so let me try to explain what I mean by that, and we'll take a look at some uh, actual text. So I'm going to try to um, share, do a screen share here at uh, what I'm referring to. So in, in the very beginning of the Jewish people, the start of the Jewish people, the first Jew was uh, the first Jews were Abraham and Sarah. Right? So so early on in the narrative about Abraham and Sarah. God says the following things to Abraham. He says, I singled Abraham out, right? Because I know that he will teach his children Lishmor Derech Hashem to keep the way of, of God. And what is that? That he will behave with justice and we will do what is right. This is really. In, if you take the Bible literally, this is why God selected Abraham on this, on this religious mission, Abraham and his descendants, because he understood that Abraham was committed to the notion of justice and what is morally right. And later on, it says um, in the book of Leviticus, God demands or commands the Jewish people to be holy. So it's kadoshim to you. The Jewish people must be holy because I got him holy. 
And again, it doesn't tell us what holiness means. So there's a lot of different interpretations of what holiness means. But there was a famous, a very important medieval rabbi named Nachmanides or Ramban. And he said, you want to know what holiness is? It means to have a sensibility of doing what is right and what is good and going beyond what the strict law is. The term in Hebrew is you have to have a sense of what is right, what is good. Even if it's it's legal to do some, sometimes we can do things that are strictly legal, but we know they're wrong anyway. So the Torah understood that, and therefore it says, you have to go beyond law. You have to have a certain sense of what is good and what is right. You know, uh, lawyers sometimes get a bad rap because they're more interested in winning a case than they are in in justice, per se. So you, there's a way you can twist the law um, to get a desired result, but the result is the result is legal, but it isn't necessarily moral. And then in um, in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, Moses tells the people before they go into the uh, Eretz Canaan to, to set up their own society. And the question is, what kind of society are you going to set up? What are you going to um, uh, uh, what kind of society are you going to set up around what values? So God tells Moses to tell the people, right? You must do what is honest and what is straightforward and what has integrity, that's Hayashar, and what is morally good. The society, the, the ideal Jewish society is the society that's built around moral integrity and moral goodness. Um, now, we can say, well, what is morality? You know, and, and again, this is a, a universal human question. We have Christians who, who ponder this, and this is a whole area of Christian ethics. There are, in, in the modern times, this is a, a fundamental question amongst secular philosophers. Um, what is morality? What are the values of good and evil? What do we mean by that? And it turns out that anybody who thinks deeply about ethics comes up with two fundamental uh, uh, values that kind of generate all of our ethical arguments and conversations and, and good, correct ethical judgment. And the first value is the value of justice. And the Torah, this is in the Torah, even though it's, it's a universal value, it's a, also a specific value in the Torah. And one of the things that Moses tells Joshua and, and the Jewish people, when you go into the land and you set up your, your ideal Jewish society, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. You should surely, or you must, rule with justice. Right? Justice has to be the governing value with, uh, in how you organize society. It's not profitability. Okay? It's not um, that, that, that might makes right. Fundamentally, if you want to have a Jewish society, the Jewish society has to be built around justice. And what does justice mean? Uh, the Torah tells us that also. One command is this, it reads as follows. It says, you, and this is talking to the judges in the society. It says, you should decide, you should decide with tzedek, with justice. When you have a dispute between a Jew and another Jew, Justice uh, must decide the dispute between a Jew and a Jew or between a Jew and a, a Gentile who's in your society. Justice is the key value. And it, it gives us a sense of 
what it means by justice. It says you should uh, judge a small person the same way you judge a, a big person. And I, I'm sure what it means is that justice has to be blind. You apply the rule impartially and fairly and uh, without uh, any uh, arbitrary discrimination. And you apply the law the same way to a rich person as you do to a poor person. Uh, you apply the same law to a person who has great influence uh, the same way that you apply the law to a person who has no influence, okay? A large person or a small person. Um, you, to, to, to favor the rich person or to favor the influential person or the politically powerful person, right, is a miscarriage of justice. So justice here means fairness, equality, impartiality. That's, I went to school at Columbia University and on the I don't know how many of you have ever been to the campus of Columbia University, but there's a large statue in, in, the, in the main uh, plaza of Columbia University uh, and it's Mother Justice. And Mother Justice is there holding scales and she's blindfolded. Does anybody guess why she's blindfolded? Why is Justice blindfolded? The answer is that you're not supposed to see who's rich and who's poor or who's politically uh, powerful and who's not politically powerful. But you apply the law the same way you know, for everybody. Doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or white or black or Jewish or Gentile, justice demands a certain virtuous blindness, I would say. So that's the one fundamental notion of morality, justice. Um, I grew up in the 60s, I'll, I'll kind of uh, let the secret out. And that was the era of civil rights. And Martin Luther King was our moral hero. And Martin Luther King, by the way, got his, his uh, passion for, for justice right out of the Bible, right out of the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and it, what he said was he dreams for the day when justice will rule, when people will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. It matters what kind of person you are. It doesn't matter what uh, the color of your skin is, what political party you belong to, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're Jew or Gentile. You know, wh what matters is whether you act uh, that was That was uh, Martin Luther King's you know, famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech, and it's right out of this Jewish sense of justice. So that's a fundamental uh, notion uh, of uh, a fundamental value of morality. Now, the second foundation of, of morality, by the way, not just Jewish morality, but Kantian morality, Christian ethics, you know, they all kind of come down on the same set of fundamental values. And the second value is what is known in Hebrew tradition as chesed or rachamim. Sometimes chesed is translated as mercy, sometimes it's translated as compassion. And I would translate Rachamim as empathy or understanding um, uh, that you're dealing with a human being, right? It's to treat another person as a full human being um, like you, that you understand has, has emotions, has, has values, uh, who loves. Um, you have to treat that other person as a human being, not as an object for exploitation or for profit. Um, and here's the way the Talmud 
explains this this moral virtue of of rachamim uh, and the behavior that, that we should engage in if we uh, live out this notion of rachamim or chesed. Uh, the, the the Torah says that we should we should imitate, we should walk after God. So the Talmud says, what does it mean to walk after God? You know, God doesn't have a certain shoe size. God doesn't go uh, walk to the east or walk to the west. You know, that's it's all a metaphor here. So what, what does it really mean, you know, in accurate terms? So the Talmud says, it doesn't mean literally that you should walk after God or the Shvina, right? It means that you should imitate the attributes or the virtues of God. And then it tells you what those virtues are. It says, God clothed the naked. Just as God clothed the naked human beings, so we human beings must clothe the naked. Now, does anybody know where God clothed the naked? It's a kind of strange notion, right? God comes down and he actually sees who's naked and provides clothes for naked people. Now, where did the rabbis get this strange notion? And the answer is that um, in the very beginning uh, of Adam and Eve, right after they ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so they covered themselves up. Um, so they took tonot oars. So God actually didn't sew the clothing on them, but God provided the material for them to cover themselves up. So the rabbi said, just as God provides the material and makes sure that people are, do not go naked, we have that responsibility toward people who have no clothing. And just as God visits the sick, we have to visit the sick. Um, uh, when did God visit the sick? The Torah says that Abraham, when he was 90 years old, circumcised himself. And then the next part, the next passage in the Torah is that Abraham is, is sitting in his tent in the desert or outside of his tent in the desert and God appears before him. So the rabbis say, ah, you know, when they put two and two together and they say, why is God visiting? Because Abraham was convalescing. He was recovering from his circumcision and God came, you know, to, um, uh, to visit him because he was in pain. Um, and just as God comforts mourners, we have to comfort mourners. So when did he comfort the mourner? You know, after, after uh, Sarah dies and Isaac uh, is mourning the fact that his, his, um, his, his mother died, uh, God came to comfort him. And finally, this is God buries the dead. A very weird notion. You know, what, what do you mean God buries the dead? Uh, where in the Bible does, or in the Torah does God bury the dead? So um, at the end of, of Sefer Devarim, when Moses asks God if he can go into the promised land, if he can go into Eretz Canaan, God says, no, but I'll let you see it. So the Torah says that, that God showed Moses Harnavo, Mount Nebo, and uh, Moses died on Harnavo, and there was nobody else there uh, because I think the Torah, God was, we were afraid that we were going to make a shrine of this uh, um, uh, burial place of Moses. And people would begin to kind of revere Moses or even idolize Moses. So nobody knows really where this place is. And then the, 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 the Torah says, and he buried him there. Moses died and he buried him. And God is the only person in the scene, the only entity in the scene. So the rabbi said, oh, God himself must have buried Moses. But the point is 
then we are supposed to imitate these, this character of chesed. All of these behaviors, right? uh, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, comforting the mourners, burying the dead, these are classic Jewish uh, uh, moral traditions that are called gemilat chesed, acts of chesed. Um, so that's how the, the Talmud, in a certain sense, um, teaches us this moral virtue of chesed. And what, is, what do I mean by rachamim? Okay. Rachamim is, is not a behavior. Rachamim is, a, is a, what Aristotle would have called a virtue. And it's, it's a personality virtue. It's a value of your personality. And what it means is that you should feel the pain and the suffering of another person. And out of that sense of pain and identification and empathy, because you understand that person is just like you. And wouldn't you want other people to help you out when you're in, in the midst of suffering? Um, and if so, the person is just like you. You know, Bill Clinton used to say, I feel your pain. You know, that, that's a very, that's not just a political claim. That's a very profound moral insight there. So that's the virtue of Rachamim. And it was put very beautifully by a modern rabbi, Eliyahu Dessler. And here's what he said. He said, the power of giving to another is a divine power. One of the traits of the creator of all things who shows compassion is beneficent and gives without receiving anything in exchange. In this way, God made man, it is written. God made humankind in his own image so that human beings would be able to show compassion, be beneficent and give to others. So it's the sense, it's, it's, it's the feeling or the moral uh, virtue of understanding the pain of another person because you see the person is similar to yourself. That's why I translated it as empathy. I mean, think about it. If you turn on the television and you see the massacre going on in Ukraine and you don't have any feeling, I mean, you're, you're just kind of cold to that, to that scene, you know, that, that means you're morally deficient, right? You have to somehow identify with these poor Ukrainians or anybody who's a victim of persecution. That's a great moral virtue. And in fact, um, uh, every moral system kind of recognizes this. I mean, Kant, who was a completely secular philosopher in this regard, you know, said that you have to treat every person as an end in himself, not as a means. That means you, you don't relate to a person just to exploit him or to use him or her. Right? You have to understand that it's a human being like yourself who has feelings, who has aspirations, who, has, who feels pain um, and treat the person as an end in, in himself and in herself. And we see that also very explicitly in the Torah. The Torah says, we're not allowed to persecute uh, the stranger in our midst. That is the person who's different, the person who's not like us. And why? Right? So the, the verse reads in Hebrew, Bager lo tilchats, you're not allowed to oppress this stranger. But you should know Right? What it means to be a stranger. Why? Because you were strangers and slaves in the land of Egypt. As a matter of fact, Rabbi uh, Joseph Salvechik, who was uh, probably the, the foremost uh, uh, legal authority and theologians of Orthodox Judaism in the 20th century, he asked the question, why did the Jews have to go into slavery in Egypt? They, they, they didn't sin. There was no, nothing that they had to be punished for. And he says that they, God demanded that 
early on in the Jewish people, we were slaves, so we understand what it feels like. We, under, we have the experience of what it's like to be a persecuted minority. And the reason we have to have that feeling of what it's like or experience of what it's like to be a persecuted minority, minority is so that we would become a chesed people and help other people who are suffering. That's the whole purpose of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of, 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 of slavery in Egypt. So this is how the Torah kind of expresses, not only expresses, but also demands that we act with a sense of chesed and compassion and mercy uh, toward other human beings. And so those are the two fundamental notions of, of ethics. Uh, oh, by the way, here's this uh, commentary about, about what does this verse mean that you know the, the uh, soul or the feelings of the stranger. So, so there's a, another famous important medieval rabbi, Ramban or Nachmanides, he says, the Torah added the reason why we can't oppress the stranger, because you know what it feels like, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That is to say, you know that every stranger, by here a stranger, he means a minority, someone who doesn't belong naturally an outsider in the society, so to speak, that every stranger feels depressed and is always sighing and crying and his eyes are always directed toward God. Therefore, God will have mercy on him and he, and he showed mercy on you in Egypt. Therefore, you have to show mercy on the stranger or the, the whoever is suffering within the society. And in fact, that's really what this whole notion of image of God means. God comes to the rescue of the stranger. So we have to come to the rescue of the stranger. God loves the stranger. We have to love the persecuted and the weak and the minority. Um, that's what it means to be a religious Jew. Um, and this is fundamentally this ethical notion of empathy or compassion or mercy. Um, and those are the two foundations of, um, of Jewish ethics. Now, now it's interesting that uh, there's this famous quote in the Talmud that Rabbi Akiva, one of the greatest Talmudic rabbis, he said, um, love your neighbor as yourself. That is That's the fundamental principle of the Torah. As if to say, if you understand that, the rest of the Torah is just a way of realizing this fundamental principle of loving your neighbor by your, uh, your fellow as yourself. And that was only that was true not only of Rabbi Akiva, but that Christian ethics recognized that. Jesus said that Jesus was quoting Leviticus uh, when he said that in, in the New Testament. And Immanuel Kant really said that also. Now, why do I point this out? Because if you look at this, this command, love your neighbor by yourself, it incorporates both of these fundamental values that I was talking about. It, it incorporates the notion of justice or equality or impartiality. Where do you see that? In the word kamocha, right? You have to love your neighbor as if your neighbor is like yourself. You have to treat your neighbor with the same uh, uh, love and concern right, and passion as you do yourself, because the fact is you are equal. And that's the notion of justice. And viahafta means that you have to feel, right? It's not just you have to behave, you have to feel, you have to love your neighbor in the sense that uh, you love yourself. You have to understand the interior um, uh, psychology and emotions and aspirations and trials and tribulations of your neighbor the way you understand 
that your own personal experience. So this notion of of loving your neighbor by yourself incorporates both the notion of equality and justice, as well as this notion of compassion and empathy. And that's why it's the, it's the greatest ethical principle that's recognized by, by all serious uh, cultures and traditions that think uh, deeply about ethics. And this is the way the Jewish, uh, our Jewish literature um, uh, expresses these ethical notions. So just because there's no Hebrew word for ethics um, doesn't mean it's not there. It's there in a very, very fundamental way. Now, just let me address one point that many religious Jews, um, because Jewish law, halacha, is so important in our tradition, they think that, you know, to be a good Jew, all you have to do is to follow the law, to follow the halacha. You know, as long as you, if you have a shulchan arach or a code of Jewish law, if you just obey everything, then that's enough. That's all God wants of you. Now, that's a very, that's, if you find very, very, uh, uh, traditional Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox or Haredi Jews, you'll find that they, a lot of them believe that notion. Now, what they don't know is that's a very modern idea. None of the rabbis in the Talmud or in the Middle Ages ever subscribed to this idea. They all understood that law or a Jewish law or a halakha is simply not enough. And here's some really fascinating and remarkable and stunning rabbinic texts that tell you this. There's a rabbinic text in the Babylonian Talmud that asks why Jerusalem, why was the second Beit HaMikdash destroyed? Um, now, the rabbis understood that the destruction of, of the temple and the exile was a punishment for sin. So they say, you know, what was, this, what was the sin? What was wrong? So Rabbi Yochanan says a very startling thing. He says Jerusalem was destroyed only because Jews followed the laws of the Torah. So the Talmud, in a kind of dialectical way, says, well, what do you mean? That's a good thing, isn't it? What laws did you want to follow? Did you want them to follow mafia laws, right, or the laws of thieves? They followed the laws of the Torah. That's a good thing. So, so Rabbi Yochanan explained his statement. He said, no, he says, they, they insisted on only the laws of the Torah, and they distorted the laws of the Torah to exploit other Jews. And they didn't go beyond the strict requirement of what the what the halacha was and the term is limited they didn't go beyond the letter of the law and you know there's sometimes you can use use hard strict law to to take advantage of other people um and uh and that's what was going on at the time of the second temple and jews were exploiting other jews and god couldn't put up with that and he destroyed the jewish people even though if you brought them before Rabbis who who, who um, held a rabbinic a legal court, right? They could not have been convicted because they did obey the laws of the Torah, but it simply wasn't enough. Now, there's even a more startling uh, a text that proves the point. There was a great. Uh, this is in the Palestinian Talmud. There was a, the great rabbi of his generation, which was a man named Shimon ben Shetach, and um, he didn't learn Torah. He wasn't a kolelnik, right? He he had a, a job. As he taught Torah at night, but during the day he worked very hard. He was in the the um, the linen trade or the flax trade, and his students said, "Look, you know our our teacher works so hard. We have to make life easy for him." So they said, "We're going to buy you a donkey, so you won't have to carry all all of the 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 flax yourself. You put it on the donkey, and the donkey will transport the flax for you." So they went and they bought a donkey from 
here it says a non-Jewish trader. The truth is that the Thomas says it was an idolater. You can't get lower on the scale of, uh, of, of, of rabbinic values than to be an idolater. So they put a donkey from this idolater, this Gentile idolater, you know, and when they were bringing the donkey back to Shalom ben Shetach, they noticed that there was a jewel, a very expensive jewel was hanging from the neck of the donkey. So they, they brought the donkey and the jewel to uh, the teacher and they said, not only don't you have to work hard anymore, you don't have to work at all because we have this precious jewel. And if you hawk it, you know, you trade in it for money, you'll be set for life. You'll never have to work again. So, um, so Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach said, you know, did the owner, this idolatrous owner who you bought the donkey from, did he know about this gem? And they said, no, he didn't. So he said, so go and return the gem. Now, it turns out that according to strict Torah law, there's no obligation to return the lost object of a Gentile, certainly not of an idolater. So he could have kept the, the, the jewel and still not have disobeyed the Torah. Right? He, had the, he had the legal permission to keep the jewel. Um, so, but he told them, no, go return it. It's the right thing to do. You have to return it. Um, so, so the student said, yeah, but it's, it's permitted. It's legally permitted to keep this jewel. And Shimon ben Shetak was outraged. And he says, what do you think I am? Do you think I'm a barbarian? In other words, do you think I'm, so, I'm uncivilized, that I have no conscience, that, that um, I would keep this? It's just wrong. It's just wrong to do this, right? So even though it's legally permitted, right, it's morally impermissible. It's barbaric. It's uncivilized to behave this way. So these texts show you that, that you need moral values beyond what the strict law uh, requires. So just let me mention a couple of moral challenges that we have. Here's one, should, should a Jew keep a lost article of a Gentile according to strict Jewish law? It's permitted, you know, is, does that make it morally right? Um, here's another question. Uh, is it right for someone to be a taker from others but not a giver to others, right? Now you say, why do I ask a question like that? The answer is that, that unfortunately, there were some Jewish legal opinions by very well-known rabbis who said that, um, you know, it's, uh, you can't donate, if you're brain dead, right, you can't donate your heart to save another person because a brain dead person may not really be dead. So you can't agree, you know, to uh, have your heart um, uh, donated to another person if you're brain dead, because it's almost murder, or if a brain dead person is not, fully dead than to take out his heart is to, is to murder him. So you can't do this. You're an accomplice to murder when you do this, but you can take someone else's heart. Now, and, and, they, and they justified it through some kind of very sophisticated and intricate legal reasoning. So it may have been the law, but is it moral to do that? Is it moral to say, that uh, I wouldn't give my heart to somebody else, but I could take somebody else's heart to save my own life. There's something morally wrong with that, but that presents a problem in terms of uh, Jewish law. And here's another problem that, uh, that we see in, the, in Ukraine, but in my neck of the woods in Jerusalem, it's a problem that Israelis have to face every day who go to war. You know, they go to war and what's the right way to prosecute a war? What's a just war? Is it allowed to, are you allowed to kill civilians in war? I don't, I don't mean unintentionally kill civilians, but to target civilians. If you, if, if a suicide or missiles come in from Gaza, 
Is it morally permissible to carpet bomb Gaza and to kill the terrorists, the Hamas fighters, but also kill a, a great number of civilians who are not combatants, elderly grandparents, infants, you know, who, who are not threatening you in any way? Um, is that is that legitimate to to um, to is that a legitimate way to fight? It turns out in the Torah there are instances where you are permitted to kill civilians, but is it moral today? So that's a moral question that we have to deal with. Here's another moral question: um, Jewish law says you're allowed to violate the Sabbath uh, to save the life of another Jew, but technically, technically, you're not allowed to violate the Sabbath to save the life of a non-Jew. Is it possible that that's moral? Um, technically, that's the law, but is it the right thing to do? Um, so these are all kind of contemporary questions that we deal with um, here. And, and I would say that the notion of morality kind of is put very, very succinctly in a beautiful verse in the prophet Micah. Here's what Micah says. He says, God has told you, human beings, you know, what is good is what is moral. And what does the God demand of you? And here's what he says. Asot mishpat, to act with justice. Mishpat here means justice. Ahavat chesed, and to love, uh, to engage in chesed and loving kindness. That's what God wants from you. And to be, to walk humbly with your God. So the fundamental, what God really wants of us fundamentally is to be moral in the sense of, Acting justly and loving and 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 loving mercy and loving kindness as to, to act mercifully and kindly toward other people. Um, that's the whole basis of not only Jewish morality but Jewish religion because this is what God really demands of us. Now let me close with this: justice. Um, the notion of justice is fairness, or justice is impartiality, or justice as as equality is not an easy notion, not an easy notion. Um, how far does this equality extend? Does it mean full equality for men and women? Does it mean full equality for Jews and Gentiles? Um, does it mean full equality for uh, adults and minors? So let me tell you about an actual historical incident which, which highlighted this, this issue. Um, in the year, in, in 1917, when uh, the British Empire passed the Balfour Declaration, which said that, that um, the Jews had a right to self-government in Palestine. So, so the Jews understood that, that they were going to have some kind of representative body that was going to um, rule or that was, was going to govern themselves. So the question came up. Um, who should be on this government body? And uh, should it include women as well as men? And the broader question is, should women be involved in politics? Now, in 1917, there were only five countries in the world, five countries in the whole world that allowed women to vote, that had women's suffrage. And one of them was Russia, because it had just undergone the communist revolution. One of them was Switzerland, and it's other three very small countries, uh, three very small uh, countries. So um, it, was, it was actually a world question. Uh, should women engage in politics? Should women have political authority? Should women have power? 
So that confronted the Jews in, in Palestine. And the religious Jews, there was a certain group of religious Jews that thought that women should, uh, should be able to sit in this government body. And they went around to every traditional uh, Ashkenazi rabbi in, in the uh, Jewish yeshuv, and they couldn't find one rabbi who said, yeah, women should be involved in politics. Women should have authority, political power. Um, they couldn't find one. And, and, but they did find one um, non-Ashkenazi rabbi, uh, Sephardi, the chief rabbi, the chief Sephardi rabbi of the old city of Jerusalem, his name is Rabbi Uziel. And he said, yeah, I know all the arguments. In the Bible, women never have power. Women never hold public positions. Women never are the kings. Uh, you know, it's always the men who have the power. When men are involved in politics. Women stay home. That's the biblical picture. And the, and the Talmudic picture also. He said, but let me ask you a simple question. Aren't women also created in the image of God? Aren't they equal to men and because they're also created in the image of God? And therefore, shouldn't they have the right to speak for themselves? And shouldn't they have the right to govern themselves? So this notion of the image of God as equality and fairness, you know, extended for Rabbi Uziel to mean that women should be involved in politics and should speak for themselves. Men should not have to speak for them. The women can have, should have the authority uh, to make decisions over their own lives. Now, that was a radical notion then. And it was not only within traditional Jewish society, it was a radical notion in the West because there were only five countries in the world that allowed women to vote. But by 1925, all of Northern Europe, the United States, you know, had passed women's suffrage. So, um, and, and today kind of we accept it. All but the most extreme ultra-Orthodox Jews allow women to vote. So how far do you extend this? That's the debate today in traditional circles. Can women be rabbis? Can women have rabbinic authority? Uh, and most traditionalists say no. So this is, in a certain sense, an ethical challenge. How do we extend the notion of tzedek to, uh, to groups of people who all of whom are created in the image of God, but who've been kind of marginalized by Jewish tradition? And that includes not only women, it includes secular Jews, it includes uh, um, gay Jews, it includes gender fluid Jews, and it includes Gentiles. You know, how far does this notion, this moral notion of tzedek and fairness and equality apply? How can you, you do this and still remain within the tradition? So that's one of the great ethical challenges that we have uh, in front of us today, and, and it will be uh, a challenge for the future. So we may not have all the answers today, but we have to ask the questions and push as much as we can to live the, the most ideal ethical life. So I'll stop here. There's a lot more we could talk about that my book covers a lot, of, a lot more things, but I think I'm trying to give you the essence of, of many of the issues. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. So interesting and, and inspiring. Thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna take the liberty of the first uh, few questions here um, and before we open it up to others. And if you wouldn't mind kindly, I know on each of these questions, you could literally give a lecture if you're able to, to, to stick to the relatively uh, shorter frame so we can get in a few questions. That would be awesome. So here's my first uh, in regards to Jewish ethics. It seems that um, one could construct an ethical argument for both sides of so many different issues of various sides, whether it's from a utilitarian perspective or a deontological perspective, virtue ethics. Once you bring in Jewish sources, you can bring in this source or that source. And then you have partisan politics that conservatives are gonna emphasize these values, liberals are gonna emphasize these values, 
Both of them could be claimed to be Jewish values. How do we avoid falling into total moral relativism, given kind of the depth and breadth of Jewish ethics and of Jewish sources and, um, and the complexity of applying it in our day? How do we understand the relativity of moral truth and yet also have, how, how do you think about the limits there? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't use the term moral uh, relativity. I'm not a relativist, but I am a, plur but I am a pluralist. That, but, but, and by that, I mean that I think we have to agree um, on fundamental values of, of um, justice and what I call empathy, treating another human being as a human being and not just an object. Now, the question is, how do we implement those values? How do we realize those values? Um, and over that, there can be legitimate disagreement. That's for sure. Um, and as, as you correctly said, some people are more conservative, meaning they want to stick to the old ways and they're, they're afraid of change. And some people have more liberal views, which means that they advocate faster change or more radical change. And I think those are legitimate debates. Um, the key thing is, can you debate and disagree and still uh, display respect for the person who you disagree with. There's, um, that's a big problem in, in Jewish life today. I mean, when you think about it, the major issues that are dividing Jews today really are ethical issues at base. You know, the issue of Zionism, support for Israel versus not, not no support for Israel, or little support for Israel. That's an issue about ethics because it's about the legitimacy of how, most often it's about the, the moral propriety of how Israel is treating the Palestinians. That's a very serious ethical debate. The issue about um, uh, authority for women, which is a huge issue in the traditional community. Um, at bottom, it's an ethical issue because it's an ethical debate because the, 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 the ones who are more progressive say, look, women, there are the school of Rabuziel, they say, you know, the women are creating an image of God. They should have equal authority. They should have equal power. You know, men shouldn't be speaking for them. That's what it means to be creating the image of God. Right? And the traditionals will say, well, look, we never did this before, you know, and we can't just do this. We don't want to be full egalitarians and we become wokes. So that's a kind of legitimate debate. But, but I think what, what we all have to agree on is what we're striving for is the best possible way to live the ethical life based around this notion of tzedek and the notion of, of empathy and how we uh, how can we treat other people in the fullest possible way as human beings, not as simply objects. It's also true, by the way, in traditional society with respect to agunot, for women who can't get divorced uh, because their husbands refuse to give them a Jewish get, uh, a Jewish bill of divorcement. Uh, it it uh, applies in Israel, at least, the issues of, of a mamzer. A mamzer is somebody who's born of an incestuous or an adulterous relationship. And according to Jewish law, they can't marry. So is that is that ethical? Is that fair to deny someone the fundamental right to marry? So how do we work these things out and still be faithful to tradition? That's a serious great. Great. So let me let me pick up on that and then and then I'll open it up after this question. So I, I know there's many different ways to resolve the tension between halakha and ethics. But how for you, when, when you experience there to be a tension in Jewish law and in Jewish ethics, as someone who has fidelity to both, how do you think about that clash? I think about it as a, as a great, first of all, it is a great tension. It's a kind of thing that keeps me up at night. 
Um, and, and what I try to do as much as possible is to find some precedent or authority within Jewish tradition, and usually you can, you know, to, um, to, to resolve the, the inconsistency or at least the tension between the ethical ideal and how we can be faithful to the Torah. Let me give you an example about this. You know, I just talked about the issue of a mamzer. He's not allowed to marry according to biblical law. So, and in Israel today, the, the chief rabbinite will not marry someone who's a mamzer. You know, so and that's not fair. I mean, it's 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 cruel. It's cruel. So there is a there is a way to solve that problem halakhically, and, and it's a traditional way. The, the rabbis of Thomas said, look, you know, we can't allow a mom's there to marry because it's against biblical law. But you know what we can do? We can refuse to acknowledge any evidence that he's a mom's there. We just simply won't listen to any evidence that says, yeah, this person was born of an adulterous or an incestuous relationship. And as long as we don't have firm evidence for it, the person is, is allowed to marry. So there's a way to go forward on this. And the same thing with Agunot. The problem is that many people are more wedded to the old traditional ways than to finding a moral way, a moral way to, to live according to Jewish law and according to the Bible. I mean, the same thing is true with returning lost objects of a Gentile. The same thing is true with respect to um, saving the life of a Gentile on Shabbat. And the same thing is true, by the way, with, with, the, with the, the correct modern requirement for just war. And the requirement is you, uh, it's, you may not intentionally kill civilians in war, even though biblically they did it. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, you see biblically they did it. Not only was it allowed, it was commanded. But the, our notion of ethics is that um, you're only allowed to fight with combatants. Um, you're not allowed to intentionally you know, kill innocent people who are not a threat to you. And the perfect example is what's going on in Ukraine today. So there is a way to move forward. And, and I, as, a, as a, a religious Jew, as an ethical Jew, try as much as possible to argue for the correctness of the, of the halakhic interpret, the moral interpretation of how religious Jews should act. I, my faith is, is that there's always a moral interpretation of Jewish law and of Jewish tradition that allows me you know, to be traditional and still to live up to the highest ideals of justice and human empathy. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Okay, friends, we'd love to welcome you to unmute yourself and ask a question. You're always welcome to write in the chat if you prefer that as well. If the rabbis came up with something like a prisbul for, for making sure that loans are made around the Yovel, how difficult would it be to do something similar with, with a marriage so that it would be, you, you know, so that it would be signed so that there's no way that um, the groom could, could refuse to give a get. I mean, there has to be a way. I think, no, is I, it just a case of not wanting it? Well, according to, according to traditional, and this is pretty fundamental in the whole legal notion of Jewish marriage, yeah, the husband uh, has, has to be, uh, be the one who initiates the divorce. And if he refuses to, refuses to do it, um, at least fundamentally, um, the wife can't do anything about that. That's a tragedy. That's, that's an instance, by the way, of not justice, but injustice. Injustice, because the wife 
is left helpless and is left to suffer. However, the rabbis at the time of the Talmud understood this issue and they tried to resolve the issue. So one of the things they did, they had this concept of annulment. They said, we can retroactively annul the marriage. If, if the marriage is indisputably over and um, there's no loving relationship, there's no compatible relationship, and the woman wants a divorce, and the man, out of a sense of cruelty, out of a sense of sadism, you know, refuses to give the wife the divorce, or says, I'll give you a divorce, you have to give me $2 million. You give me, you fork over $2 million, I'll give you a divorce. That's extortion, right? That's immoral, right? So the rabbis understood you can't live this way. So what they did is they came up with a concept of annulment. And they said, look, every Jewish marriage that takes place, takes place um, with the approval of the rabbis. And therefore, the rabbis can retroactively annul the marriage by disapproving of it. Um, and and uh, but now this is a radical move, but they did it because they understood the moral necessity to do it. The problem is that today may, most traditionalists will not invoke that legal option. Now, why they don't do it is is a complicated issue. But the, the, there is a legal resource to do that. There's a Jewish legal resource to do it. It's called Hafka'at Kedushin. And um, there's a, at Barilan University, there's a whole center for women's studies and, um, that is, that is uh, doing research and showing the legitimacy of, of that legal instrument to, to do this. So you don't have to destroy the whole institution of, of uh, Kedushin or Jewish marriage in order to solve the problem. The real problem is that there's not a political will to do that. So if, if you have a moral conscience and, and you understand the gravity of this issue, right, your responsibility is to push as much as possible and to highlight as much as possible the necessity um, to find solutions for, for this problem of Laguna. The, the, the problem is fundamentally not moral, it's political. And that's a great tragedy for our people. Thank you. Our next question is from Dr. Janie Heydrich. Hi, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Korn. It was absolutely wonderful this morning. Um, <clears throat> the downside, of course, is that many of the things that you said are gonna keep me up at night wondering about. Um, but I was reminded um, that a good uh, lawyer friend of mine, and yes, I do have some lawyer friends, um, said, this is the world of legal this is the world of moral in law. And um, I've always kept that in mind. And it's, um, it's comforting in a way to know that um, there are um, debates and uh, questions and discussion within the Jewish community about these same issues. Um, and what would be your best advice when something comes up and we go, oh no, what do we do? Well, first of all, I think it's very important to find someone who's perhaps more knowledgeable than yourself in, in, in Jewish tradition and Jewish sources and Jewish law, who has the same moral sensibility that you have. And, and, to, and to try to work out the problem with that person, um, it's not enough simply to go to somebody who is a great authority, but who doesn't have, who doesn't feel the, the, the passion and the compulsion Know, to solve these moral issues. Um, so again, my faith is that there always is such a person and there always is a legal way to resolve these moral problems. And um, I'd like your, your lawyer friends, okay? 
what I tried to point out to you is that you don't have to put a modern lawyers for that. This the rabbi said that, that Shimon Ben Shetak said it, right? He said, yeah, it's legally, you can keep, you can keep this personal joy. I wouldn't have to work for the rest of my life. But to do so is to be an unethical, antisocial person. It's to be a barbarian. So this is very deep in our tradition also. Um, if I may, a, a short follow-up. <clears throat> um, I know there are major uh, Jewish tenets that are there. They're literally carved in stone, um, and we don't mess with those. But what you've talked about is uh, some transitional uh, discussions and transitional uh, decisions. Like in 1917, five, you know, five countries, that really uh, de determines some of the um, effects or, or discussion. Today, it's a very different one. Um, and you did refer several times in your, your talk today that, um, uh, that things are moving, they are changing. So what is our role in that? I think our role is, is, to, is to search our hearts as honestly as we can to, to uh, determine what we believe is right and then to push you know, for evolutionary change toward what is right. Not revolutionary change, because with revolutions usually do more harm than good, right? But but we have to understand that Jewish tradition and Jewish law, Jewish religious law, are evolutionary processes. Right? At one point, we, we, polygamy was allowed and practiced in Jewish law, but we no longer do that. At one point, there was slavery was allowed and practiced in Jewish law. We no longer do that. Right? At one point. There, uh, Jewish law, the structure for Jewish politics was a, a king, a monarchy. We, now we have democracy. Aren't we the better for it? It doesn't mean that we violated tradition or violated Jew, but there's a notion of evolution. So we have to push for constructive, constructive evolution. And, and also, I would say, understand that uh, the people who disagree with us are not evil people. They're not our enemies. It should be a respectful debate between the people who are pushing for, I would say, uh, a more morally pure evolutionary process than those people who are more conservative. But, but it's very key to understand that both sides need to be respected. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining us. Uh, great to learn with you. And thank you, Rabbi Dr. Eugene Korn from Jerusalem uh, tonight uh, for talking. I hope you'll consider picking up this book, To Be a Holy People, Jewish Tradition and Ethical Values. And we hope you will join us also on Monday with Rabbi Yedidia Sinclair, uh, who's going to be talking about from avoiding to embracing Rav Cook and the future of Shemitah, the sabbatical year, which we're in right now, that and many other great classes coming up. As usual, this is recorded today if you want to share it with anyone else. Thanks so much for joining and wishing everyone a great rest of your day. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.